there's a, a sort of residue of the mindset that we can just step in and solve the problem. Um, that, you know, the, the people who are, are poor or affected by war or, or who've suffered a, a natural disaster, they can't, for whatever reason, really contribute to our understanding. We know what we need to know. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next Grand Bargain the Great Leap Sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand Bargain. Decolonizing aid. COP26. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week we continue to explore how data and analysis is woven into the humanitarian narrative and how this influences decision making. My guest is Dominique Nash and the episode came about because of a blog post he wrote called Not a Priority, the Lack of a Contextual Understanding in Humanitarian Missions. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Dominique has thought deeply about many of the same things that preoccupy me around the way we use evidence in decision-making, and he has reached many of the same conclusions. Furthermore, he is able to express them in a very clear and compelling way. So I think there's a very clear and very strong message for the sex and what he says. It is depressing that his conclusion, after a number of years in the humanitarian sector, was that he wanted to leave and find a different domain to work in, but I really appreciate that he made some noise on the way out of the door. A big thank you for all the feedback on social media over the past weeks. It's really appreciated. It's so great to hear what you like about the show. Please keep it coming. Most importantly, enjoy the conversation. Dominic Nash, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thanks very much for having me. This conversation came about um, because a, a friend of mine uh, tweeted at me on Twitter and said, hey, have you read this new article in HPN? It's really interesting. And I looked it up and I agreed with him. I think it's an excellent piece that you've written. It's called Not a Priority, the Lack of Contextual Understanding in Humanitarian Missions. You used to work in the humanitarian sector for about five years with different agencies. Today, you're a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And you've written this piece in your in your personal capacity, so it doesn't reflect the, the initiative's uh, position. So just ex explain a bit, uh, why did you write this piece and what's actually your argument? Thank you. So there were a couple of motivations for writing the piece. The, the main one, the primary one, was um, a conviction that this, this problem of humanitarian NGOs not really understanding very well the context that they work in and therefore the um, effects that their their actions have is really a sectoral problem. Um, it happens across different organizations, all across the humanitarian sector. Um, my own experience was across three different organizations, so by no means all the humanitarian NGOs, very far from it. but. They were three very different types of agency, and I encountered such similar 
types of barrier to my work as a contextual analyst, and also from speaking to peers and colleagues who worked for other organizations doing similar types of work, so many of them said, yeah, I, I can really see my own experience in that. So a, a big motivation for writing the piece was to, to try and address the humanitarian sector as a whole and say, this is a topic that I think is really important. It's, it's widespread and it, it needs to be a part of the discourse. So what, what are the consequences of this lack of contextual analysis? I think there's really very many of them on a number of different levels. I think it contributes to the sort of top-down colonial elements of the international humanitarian sphere. I think it contributes to the gap between national and international staff. I think it lessens the impact of programs on their own terms. I think it makes impact less sustainable. Um, it's harder for agencies to leave or, or have exit strategies that really make sense and, and mean that they're um, ending their, their assistance in a way that is as smooth as possible. I think it lessens their ability to do good advocacy. Um, it, There's there's a, a really broad range, and I, I think it's all avoidable. So I would agree with most of that, but but at the same time, I'm also left with this feeling, and I'm sure you feel the same way, that my colleagues in the humanitarian sector they're not stupid, they're not uh, ill-intentioned, right? Uh, I think they're some of the most impressive uh, people I know working in the humanitarian sector. So why do we have this systemic problem? What's the root cause? Absolutely no, I I agree with that, and I think. My analysis, um, it's really key to my analysis is that this is not about individuals. Individual humanitarians, whether they're um, in, in senior leadership positions or otherwise, so often are, as you described, they're, they're very high-functioning, intelligent, well-intentioned. It's not about individual people. It's about how the sector is set up as as a set of institutions. It's partly that um, funding, I mean, this is a, a common problem a across many types of sort of humanitarian issue, but short-term funding cycles create a perverse set of incentives where just getting through your program cycle, just getting through your workload and applying for the next round of funding becomes such a crucial priority for everyone that everything else is um, relegated in importance. I think there's also a sort of societal element that as institutional um, bodies based in the Western world, based in predominantly rich, often ex-colonial countries, there's a, a sort of residue of the mindset that We can just step in and solve the problem. Um, that you know the the people who are, are poor or affected by war or, or who've suffered a, a natural disaster, they can't, for whatever reason, really contribute to our understanding. We know what we need to know. You know, there's there's a set of technical skills and resources that we've got, and you know that's that's the important thing. And I think also. Stemming from both of those root causes is a sort of cultural thing of deeds, not words. P 
people who come into the humanitarian sector, I think, tend to be very sort of action-oriented anyway. And the sector makes them even more so. You know, there's such a pressure on getting stuff done and the, the sort of kudos that an individual and an organization gains is through hitting your targets, you know, saying I can be effective even in situations of great stress and difficulty. I think another element which is important to touch on is the, the primacy of the, the technical in contemporary humanitarian operations, because I think that speaks both to the analysis and also to um, the, the sense-making process, um, as, as you just um, described it. What do I mean by that? I mean that it seems to me that a lot of humanitarian operations regard problems as technical with technical solutions. So, you know, if, if humanitarian work is just, you know, building the correct amount of showers and latrines per hundred refugees or getting the correct amount of nutrients into the hungry child, then the context doesn't matter, right? Two plus two still equals four, whether you're in a, a boardroom in Geneva or whether you're in a, a camp in, in a war zone. The context really does become just a sort of a curiosity because all you're there to do is to apply this technical procedure and your challenges are therefore just sort of logistical. So I think that's that's maybe one um, element of the problem um, or another way of phrasing an element of the problem. But it also speaks to the sense-making process because if you're open to the idea that providing solutions, so to speak, it isn't technical, that it's it's much more relational um, and there's there's an inherent sort of political element to it, then yeah, your your whole sort of approach to what it is that you're trying to do changes. And I think that's where um, the the change in sense making really needs to take place, you know, in, in being open to more complexity and more sort of problematization of, of what it is that you're trying to do. So that's very clear. You, you, you basically say there are three root causes here. One is just the funding, the operational grind, you know, the just feeding the beast, basically, uh, and the short funding cycles and all of that. And secondly, the whole institutional framework, the, our perception of our own role as the fixers, the guys who come out to, you know, take care of business. And so let's take care of it. And then thirdly, this uh, cowboy mentality, if you want, uh, now let's get uh, the trucks rolling. That, that's a clear analysis. I, I'll, I'll challenge you a bit on that later on. But what, what's, your, what's your solution then? What are your recommendations? Well, clearly in some of those root causes, there's um, things that need to be done on a very large-scale, long-term basis. And in, in the piece, I um, consciously decide not to um, go down that avenue. I think that's um, a slightly separate conversation from the one I want to have. I focus on um, a couple of operational changes that I think um, 
humanitarian NGOs could make sort of here and now without having to drastically change the way they, they work. Um, so there's two things that I suggest, and they go very much hand in hand. They're, they're separate, but they have to both happen at the same time. The first should be that senior leadership teams in in country, at country level, should be judged on their contextual sensitivity or their, their, their country program's contextual sensitivity as a non-negotiable performance indicator in the same way that they are held responsible for keeping the budgets in order, maintaining workable relationships with the, the national government, and hitting certain quantity and quality targets of programming, they should be non-negotiably assessed on, on the contextual sensitivity of, of the operation. That's one. The second thing is that the capacity to do good contextual analysis and thinking in-country has to be credible. So the second step, the second thing I recommend, is to make it a, an institutional norm for every international humanitarian NGO to have a small team of people who do this. You could call them researchers, analysts, humanitarian affairs. The, the title doesn't matter so much, but the point is you have at minimum two, preferably more, and at minimum one national staff as part of this team. And you thereby sort of create the capacity for an organization to be doing good research, good background assessments, and, and the, the sort of slightly intangible work that, that I'm talking about. Great. And I agree with that. I think, I think those are all good things, and I've all, always found it baffling that basically as an industry we spent more money evaluating how things went wrong after the fact than we do on assessing and analyzing up front and getting it right. right? You, you, I know a whole bunch of people who make their living as being very good consultants uh, evaluating operations left, right, and center, whereas I think it's better now. I think the community has grown over the past 10 years, but humanitarian analysts used to be very, very hard to find. I think it has it is has begun to change, and I think there's a growing recognition of the problem, but I don't think we're there yet. What I'd like to discuss with you, and, and again, I, I really like your piece. Um, it, it, it's you, I think you managed to very eloquently, more eloquently than I normally am able to to express uh, this, this quite fundamental problem for us. Um, but I'd like to take you up on your your problem analysis. Why, why does this happen? And it's not that I disagree with what you say, but I think there is a deeper level uh, to the problem that that's that is taking me a long time to to come to terms with and really understand. And it is that I think I simply don't think we we have the right understanding of the relationship between evidence base and decision making is is one thing. Um, I think very often people assume that if we have better contextual analysis, we will get it right. But, but the fact is that you can have the best contextual analysis in the world and still make the wrong decision. And actually, you can have very limited knowledge and still get it right. I think what assessment does for us, or analysis, a better evidence base, whatever you want to call it, I think what that does for us is that it enables us to learn over time. So that if we document and make it transparent, why did I choose to go left three months ago? 
because of these assumptions, because of this evidence, whatever. Then three months later, you can say, well, actually, I should have gone right. That was a wrong decision to make. So I can now go back and see why I was wrong. And that enables institutional learning. And I don't think that that has entered. That, 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 that's one thing that I don't think people understand. They, they tend to think, we got the assessment, we got it right. But there is a decision to be made. And that decision can be wrong and can be right. For me, that's actually not the point. The point is, can you be accountable? Can you learn over time? That, that's one aspect that I, I often struggle to communicate when, when I try to talk about these things. The second thing is the architecture. How, how do we actually set up the sense-making process? And there, I think what we are really, what we do is we impose almost an operational logic on a sense-making process in the sense that we, uh, the Grand Barkin talks about uh, one consolidated view coming out of the HCT um, so, so that we, we know what to do. And again, that, that sort of assumes that there is one answer, and then once we found the answer, we, we do that. That's, that's not how sense-making works. So for me, it is more about having contrasting and complementary perspectives that are connected. So in other words... We need to talk together, we need to share data, and we need to really celebrate our disagreements and, and pick them apart and figure out why we disagree. And we have to be able to live with the ambiguity of there not being one simple answer to a situation. That, and I, I, that, that's where, I think that's the deeper level that I don't see reflected in your, the, the way you describe the problem. What, what do you think about that? No, fair enough. I think those are, are two um, extremely pertinent points that you're right, I don't really um, touch on in, in the piece. Um, but I would perhaps slightly opportunistically argue that my suggestions um, do speak to those issues. I think your, your first um, point about uh, the evidence base to me, that's really about what the humanitarian does. Is it just a purely life-saving emergency intervention? No, it, it's not. Let's be honest. The, the humanitarian sector is this huge, sprawling, long-term thing now. It, it does everything from women's rights to education to health, short-term, often long-term years, if not decades. And I would argue that part of the decision-making process is trying to understand what is the humanitarian's role and what is not the humanitarian's role. And I think having a team of contextual analysts will help to answer that question and separate out the, the truly humanitarian, the stuff that's defensible, and the stuff that is more opportunistic, more sort of mission creep. So... Yes, I think that is a, a huge problem, but I would argue that having more contextual analysis as opposed to sort of needs analysis would, would help. I think that's a very fair point. And, and um, I think another way of saying what you just said is we have a tendency to focus on doing things right and less on doing the right things. And I couldn't agree with you more that, that what we need is a deep contextual analysis for us to understand what do the humanitarian principles mean in this context. 
and how do we then position ourselves to be most effective in, in restoring the agency of people affected by crisis and, and protecting their basic rights. Precisely, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think on your second point, this is one of the reasons why I'm convinced that analysis of the type I'm talking about, contextual analysis, it's got to be a team effort because there are so many actors that humanitarians need to speak to. You know, ideally, a humanitarian country operation would be speaking to not only their peer organizations, but development actors, academics, emergency services, you know, fire, police, um, religious authorities, such a broader range of, of actors than people normally have time to speak to. You know, normally in the humanitarian sector, even coordinating among the humanitarian NGOs is a huge challenge, let alone building up um, meaningful relationships with this huge range of, of other actors. So again, I think just having the capacity um, to say, look, we are getting the perspectives of these civil society organizations, these um, you know, other people who, who are not strictly necessary for delivering a, an end product, but are essential for understanding what's going on and who's doing what in, in the sort of broad scheme of things. I, so again, I agree. But I could also say, it, yeah, but that's not interesting. What's interesting is, why don't we? I mean, basically what you're saying is, if you want to operate in a context, in a country, you need to understand what's going on in that country. That's what technically is known as a no-brainer. Yet we don't. And so, again, if I can challenge you, I think what you have to dig down to is the underlying, and you do mention this, to be fair, is the underlying incentive structure which enables us to operate without knowing what we're doing. And I, I actually I laughed uh, quite a bit when I... Uh, when I read the first part of your article where you basically say that the new way of working is that now we will start thinking. I, I, I thought that was quite, and not just doing. Um, but I think, how do we reverse that incentive structure? How, how do you make it something that you have to do to get the funding? My personal experience suggests that donors are very open to new information and more sort of sustainable and, and um, cost-effective types of programming. I agree with that, but how do you change that from a nice-to to a need-to? Well, uh, I mean, uh, at the risk of going in circles, I think it's about incentivizing the country leadership in such a way that says, look, if you can't show us in HQ in, in you know, Geneva or, or Brussels or, or wherever you happen to be headquartered, if you can't show us demonstrably how this program is contextually sensitive, then you know you're not going to get another good mission. You're you're not going to get your contract extended. Or on the other hand, if you can show us this and you're doing a really good job of it, then you know you're on the fast track. You're going to the top of the tree. Because to me, it's it's about two things. It's about individual people because they make up institutions, but it's also about institutional culture. Where do those two things coincide? Leadership. So you have to change how the executive leaders are seeing what it is that they have to do. 
the answers that, and, and this is a very complex conversation, but I mean, the, the answers that I have come up with is, um, on one side, I think there's a lack of institutional diversity. I think inevitably, and I, I speak from my own experience of, of being a country director in, in, in operations and, and so on, you will be in the operational crunch. It's very, very hard to break and to sit down and drink tea and chat about what happened 15 years ago in terms of this conflict. That is difficult to achieve. It, it really is. And so it's not likely that you'll see a fundamental change just because we hire a few more analysts who can sit in a corner and write stuff. I think the answer that I'm coming up with is that the problem is we are letting the organizations that are involved in response and naturally will focus on response and what they do, we let them also shape the humanitarian narrative. And I think, of, of course, they need to have a massive input into that. But you can't get it right without also having operationally independent actors who inject a real-time analytical input into uh, decision-making. If you try to build it from the different agencies who are involved in uh, WASH or health or protection or whatever they're doing, you it's very hard to cancel out those operational biases without somebody who's not operational and therefore is incentivized to think holistically about the, the crisis. And if you sit inside an organization as an analyst, your job is to help your country director make better decisions. And so that will already shape your focus on doing things right instead of doing the right things. So for you, the answer is to have two separate types of organization working in the humanitarian context. Or more, or more. I, I think we have to have more institutional diversity. And of course, I work with ACAPS, and that's exactly what we try to be. We try to be an operationally independent input into uh, humanitarian decision making. That doesn't mean we are unbiased. We get plenty of things wrong. But it means that if we get them wrong, it's not because we had to do something about nutrition in the Northwest and therefore only focused on the Northwest and, and ignored the South. It's because we weren't good enough. And, and I think introducing that operationally unpolluted input or voice into the choir of, of, of voices trying to make sense out of this crisis will help the system evolve. Potentially. I mean, I think I would see it the other way in that if you have an external voice saying, here's more information, here's advice, here's a broader perspective, that country director, that head of programs will say, ultimately, that's a third party and I'm not accountable to them. I need to do what I need to do. So for me, that voice has to come from the inside. It's a little bit like if you... This is a, an, an imperfect analogy, but I, I think you'll, you'll see what I'm getting at. If you have a surgeon who says, I don't have time to put on a mask and a gown and gloves and deal with disinfectant. I've got a guy dying on my table right there. I've just got to get in there. I'm sorry, I don't have time. You know, ultimately, that's their responsibility or their irresponsibility. It has to be on that surgeon's boss or that hospital to say, look, th this is an impediment, no, no getting around it. It does slow you down to put on this protective gear, but it, it's also imperative. Even in a life or death situation, you have to take the time to do it properly. 
And if it's some third-party regulator or, or you know, uh, someone else saying, well, this is how we do it, or, you know, ultimately that person can be ignored. So I think it has to come from, from inside. It has to come from the organization who takes it upon itself to say, this is how we do it. So I'm not arguing that, just to be clear, I'm not arguing that you can outsource your analysis. I think it is the responsibility of every single humanitarian organization to think about and justify why they are present in a given context and why they do what they do. So it's not a question of either or. So uh, somebody external delivered an analysis, now let's do what they say. It's more like reading two newspapers. It's more like, would you invest your pension money in a company based on what that company says about itself? Well, I'm sure that would answer the equation, but I'm sure you would also, before you throw in all your, your, your money, you would also want to hear what an independent stock analyst has to say about that company. And I think that's my point. Why don't we have independent stock analysts? Sure. No, I, I can definitely agree with that. And the more accountability that can be introduced, the better. You know, the, the more people who are invested in a humanitarian response, um, whether it's journalists or analysts or um, civil society, definitely the better. And I think that that raises or, or begins to touch on another really key issue in this debate, which we haven't um, sort of addressed yet, which is the role of local um, local knowledge, local organizations, local research or academic or other types of institution who don't have to do their homework because they already know. Um, you know, why do international NGOs struggle so much to listen to those people? Um, because one one sort of answer to, to this whole topic that we're discussing is cut out the middleman, just ignore the international NGOs completely and start funding local NGOs. That's a... Um, I think there's quite a broad consensus that we need to be doing a lot more of that, and I certainly agree with that. But again, I think the way to get there is you've, you've got to have some bridges, and I think having better analysis done by the internationals who, like it or not, are currently plugged into institutional donors, that's the way to begin to bridge that gap. The thing that always gets me, and I, I like your thinking about cutting out the middleman, but the thing that always gets me is that if you go to any major NGO, I can tell you there's one part of that organization that is brilliant at making evidence-based decisions and uses data like there's no tomorrow, like state of the art. That's their fundraising department. They know exactly how to target different people, what works, what doesn't work. They know which street to put their faces on so they can get recurrent contributions. It's, it's fantastic to watch that. And it's utterly depressing to then contrast that to the way in which data information decisions are made on what we actually do, which is launching humanitarian operations and which you describe very well in this piece. And so, again, I... I, I fully agree that we have to democratize the way in which the humanitarian narrative is shaped and that obviously we need to have the populations affected by crisis have a major voice in this. Not the only voice, but a major voice in this. And we have to have 
the, the, the local civil society have a major voice in this, and we are not, right? We're the experts flying in from the outside and doing a more or less haphazard analysis, and then we get some money and we do stuff. Right? It's, it's a bit of a simplistic way of, of describing things, of course, but for me that is more or less what it boils down to, and for me that, that it's so depressing that this is not the center of the humanitarian discussion, because this is how we figure out are we, are we doing the right things? And instead, we're running around figuring out are we doing things right without asking is, is the purpose? Are we really purpose-driven here? Are we really principled? And, and we, we, we have to, to come to terms with that. Yeah, I was thinking as, as you were speaking, and you used the word principle at the end just there, I think coming back to my own experience in the sector, I sometimes felt as though the principles of neutrality and impartiality were actually slightly misused in this sense and became almost a contributing factor to the lack of awareness and accountability as, as you're describing. And the I'm paraphrasing here, but the logic is almost because we're neutral and impartial, it's good for us not to know the details of the politics, the history, the economics. Because if we don't know, how can we be biased? That. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why people think actually there's no harm in not knowing. It's quite good for us because we're neutral. But it is good for us in the sense that it makes our life easier. And anybody who thinks that a stronger evidence base will, will make their life easier is, is, doesn't understand how this works. It, it will make life diff more difficult because it will make it clearer what choices we are making, but it will make our, our work better and more impactful. I, I really hear what you're saying on, on, on that principled uh, discussion. I, and for me, what, what that boils down to is... Uh, two very different conceptions of, of what, or two very different perceptions of what principles actually are. The way I would look at them is, the principles is what we aspire to achieve and that we know we probably never will be able to. But it's like a measuring stick that shows us how, how much short did we fall of the target this time. And so that's the, it's what keeps us in check, it's, it's the guiding principle. And I, I hear another version of them, which is these are the things we have to comply with or we are bad professionals or bad people or bad humanitarians. And for me, that's a very naive way of thinking about them. It's, it's, it's also a very institutional way of thinking about them. Right? I, think, I think part of the problem is that the institutions we have are set up to squash any risk and uncertainty and create predictability. And if you look at it from that perspective, the way of, of, of thinking about neutrality, for example, is makes sense. But that's not the reality we live in. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you've touched upon a couple of key things there. And, and one of them, which I really agree with, is the sense of being the good guys. That, you know, we're, we're very professional and, and high-functioning, but more importantly, we're, we're good. You know, our motivations, our intentions are altruistic, human. And I think 
what this breeds on an institutional level rather than an individual one is is exactly what you just said that there's no space for saying maybe we got this wrong or we did that really badly um it's it all sort of becomes unspeakable to to say you know let's let's try doing it a different way because that that's risky and and if you're always the good guy then you know you can't take the risk of being the bad guy because then who are you so i, I think that's a a really important point and also just to to go back to something you said a little before that absolutely it's going to make it harder you know contextual data doesn't make one's life easier it it unquestionably makes it harder and one of the reasons that my own experience was often very difficult i think was because i was an irritant basically my my job in in questioning why my organization was doing things or or how it on a day-to-day week-to-week operational level that was a impediment to getting on with the smooth running of the ship um and therefore you know as a as an individual researcher in an organization that isn't um necessarily incentivized in the right way that person just gets sidelined and and you know me and and my peers experienced that in so many different settings so after five years as a humanitarian irritant you decided to call it quits left the humanitarian sector more or less frustrated and uh, went into a different industry is that how it was yeah i i sort of um i don't know if i left so much as i i just ran out of steam um i didn't have the the energy to accept another mission or apply for another job um so it wasn't that i consciously said um i'm going to go and search for something else because i thought of something better to do it was more a sense of I, i'm just exhausted i i can't keep pushing sort of against the tide um and then yeah as as it happened um i was very fortunate to be offered a position in a in a think tank where i am now um and yeah i'm i i cannot very easily see a route back into the humanitarian world for me even if i want it which um given the way i i left i'm not sure that i do but where you are now in a think tank is that, is that um is that more satisfying are you more at home there in many ways um in many ways it's it's a it's a very good environment for me you know as someone who cares about learning understanding analyzing i'm now in an institution that is completely geared towards learning and understanding and analyzing so in that sense it's um you know it's a sort of hand in glove fit but i do miss honestly the the sense of being on the ground and and being only one step away from making a difference quote unquote as opposed to two or three steps away um so there's 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 still a lot of um elements of the humanitarian world that that I I still really you know when I hear about my my friends who are going off to do different missions there's still you know a big part of me that thinks oh I I want to do that you know what dominic i i'm thinking that it's 
that we have a problem if we lose people like you, because you 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 have presented such a clear analysis of some of the basic problems we have, and and it really pains me that you not run away. I think you more just let go, just stop hanging on after five years. I, I fully understand that choice, and I'm really happy that you you're in an environment now where where we're learning and, and analyzing is sort of the the focus of things. And I wish we we would find a way of creating more conducive work environments for your profile and, and, and your skill set because we desperately need that. But first and foremost, I want to say a big, big thank you for writing that article in HPN. I think it's an excellent piece of work and please go read it uh, if you're listening to this. And thank you for not giving up in that sense, but to continue striving on uh, to, to improve the way we, we do business. And we hope to have you back someday. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity, Lars Peter. I've really enjoyed um, being able to speak with you. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>